And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Turn to Romans chapter 8. It was well into the, well into the week this week when I'd already got the sermon ready and was, you know, on my way and what have you, that I realized I, I made a little mistake. So next week we're going to backtrack. I didn't feel comfortable dumping this and starting something brand new so late in the week, but we're going to, yeah. I mean, she looked right at me and, nah. I don't know what she had in her hand, but she wanted me to know about it. Uh, anyway, so n- next week we're going to do uh, another sermon that has to do with uh, 28, 29, and 30. We've already done about four on it, but these are some of the most just crucial verses in Scripture. And so we're going to backstep. But for this week, all right, we're going to pick up in verse 31, just verses 31 and 32. If you would, just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, we come before You now uh, simply to bow the knee and acknowledge our need of You, of Your Holy Spirit, to speak this truth into our hearts. Father, we are talking about the greatest gift. And because of that gift, we can understand that there's nothing for our good that You would ever withhold from us. So God, I pray that we would gain encouragement from the message, uh, Father, maybe even some knowledge because we didn't know about this. So You do Your work in our hearts and we'll give You praise and glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, a main question that I wrestle with uh, fairly regularly in Scripture is, so what? What difference is this text supposed to make in my life and in the lives of others? Now, sometimes that question is difficult to answer. But when we study the Bible, we always need to ask, so what? Now, Paul raises that question in verse 31 with reference to the wonderful truths that he has just unfolded in verses 28 through 30. What then shall we say to these things? Now, many scholars say that these things, which... Paul references there, that that refers back to everything that Paul has written so far in Romans about the gospel of justification by faith alone. And and that may be so, but it seems to me that his question in verse 31 refers specifically to the great truths that Paul has just listed in verses 28 through 30. It's there that Paul said, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Well, as we've seen, verses 29 and 30 actually explain verse 28. The reason that all things work together for good for God's people is that our salvation from first to last is from the Lord. He originated it before the foundation of the world by choosing to set His love on us and by predestinating us to be conformed to the image of His Son. I'll hold her if you really want me to. (laughs) 
she just learned how to walk, what, two weeks ago? And that's the bad thing about babies. When they learn how to walk, you just can't leave them. Because you turn your back and they're gone. Well, she was already waiting her up the aisle. Don't stop her, Mom. Well, uh, at some point in our lives, okay, He called us and He justified us. And He will bring us bring our salvation to a completion when we share His glory with Him when He returns. Now, this entire process is secure because it ultimately is not about us. Uh, it's about Jesus Christ being the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brethren. Now, if God's purpose to glorify His Son is secure, then our salvation is secure as well. Paul then especially focuses on these wonderful truths when he asks, what then shall we say to these things? His answer is that God is for us. And that's proven by the amazing demonstration of His love uh, by which He gave His Son to die for us on the cross. Now these verses have widespread application to all of our needs, but in the context, Paul is especially focused on how we as believers can endure opposition and hardship for the sake of the gospel. All we have to do is look to the next few verses. Paul has some questions for us. Who can be against us? Verse 31. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 33. Who is to condemn? Verse 34. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. So he's applying the truths of 28 to 30 to how we can stand firm in the face of opposition and hardship for the sake of the gospel. Now, to be honest, that's a topic that most of us know very little about firsthand. Maybe you've been ridiculed by friends or family. Maybe a university professor puts you in your place because of your faith in Christ. Maybe you've been discriminated against at work because you're a Christian. But probably none of us have been thrown into prison, had, have had our houses burned down, or our families or our lives threatened or harmed because of the gospel. Now that may seem soon change. As you know, our religious freedoms, they're continually under attack. Jesus predicted that this message, the gospel message, would cause families to be divided against one another and even betray one another to death. So we need to be prepared to endure opposition so that we will stand firm in the gospel. Now Paul is saying to endure opposition... Focus on God's great love as seen in His gift of His own Son. Now verse 32 is often yanked out of context and misapplied. God promises to freely give us all things. Make it sound like a blank check. Do you want a nicer house or a new car? Claim it by faith in this verse. Young Ben, do you want a successful career and a supermodel wife? Who, who wants to bear your children and, and keep your house and, and make delicious meals for you every night. Well, claim it all by faith. But that's not what verse 32 promises. The text is, do you want to faithfully endure tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? These are the things that are mentioned in verse 35. God who loved you so much that He sent His own Son to die for your sins 
will give you the grace and the strength that you need to bear up under every trial for the sake of the gospel. Now God, who has done the most for you by giving His own Son, will help you endure every trial that you go through for Christ's sake. Now because of His great love for you, He will bring you safely to glory. Paul applies three great truths to help us persevere. And the first is the truth of God's sovereignty in saving us that demands a response of worship and total submission. What shall we then say to these things? Now I get the impression that Paul is stunned, that he's awed by the truths that he's just spelled out in verses 28 through 30. It's a staggering thought that God chose to save us before we were even born. Or that He called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2.9. Or that He justifies us apart from any works. That's chapter 4 of Romans. Or that our future glorification with Him is a done deal. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Paul says that we are already glorified. It's past tense. So the question is, what then will you say to these things? Will you say, well, predestination is just a controversial doctrine that, that doesn't really relate to my life? Or, well, that's nice, but it, it doesn't relate to the advancement of my career. If you can just shrug off the glorious truths of verses 28 and 30, then something is seriously wrong with your heart before God. We just sang, when I survey the wondrous cross, that's Isaac Watts. The last line of that song, that should be our response to verses 28 through 30. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Well, number two, the truth that God is for us in the gospel means that we must evaluate all opposition and difficulties in light of God's grace. If God is for us, who can be against us? As many commentators point out, if that does not indicate uncertainty about God's favor, it can, it can rightfully and legitimately be translated since God is, is for us, who is against us? In light of the fact that God foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified and glorified us, we know that He is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? To be against us would be to go against God Himself. Now, Paul's not denying the reality of opposition. I've already read it. In verse 35, he mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. In the next verse, in verse 36, he cites Psalm 44, 22. And it says, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In Ephesians 6, 10-13, Paul mentions that we are wrestling against powerful spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. So he doesn't mean that we don't have any opponents but rather that anyone who comes against us when we are standing for the truth of the gospel is actually going against God Himself. Now they may succeed in taking our lives, but God will glorify us and judge those against us who do not repent. But how do we really know that God is for us? 
After all, some of the greatest atrocities in history have been justified because the perpetrator thought that God was on his side. Incredibly, Adolf Hitler interpreted the Japanese slaughter of Americans at Pearl Harbor as a sign that God was on his side as he exterminated the Jews. But on the other side of things, you remember Jacob, the patriarch? He thought that the difficult circumstances of his life were all against him, which was far, far from the truth. He needed to know what Joseph, his son, knew. That although Jacob's other sons meant these things for evil, what? God meant them for good. Now here are three steps to work through to evaluate your critics. First, make sure that God is for you. Either God is for you or He's against you. There is no neutral with God. And if God is against you, let's do it Paul's way, who can be for you? Think about it. God is the worst conceivable enemy to have in the entire universe. And if you're not in Christ, then you're under God's righteous wrath and you're headed for eternal judgment. So make sure that your hope for escaping God's judgment does not lie in your own good works. That will get you nowhere. It's only in Christ's death on your behalf that you can be saved. Make sure that you're standing for the gospel. That's point one. Second, examine your heart by asking whether God could be using the opponent or the critic to get you to deal with some blind spot or shortcoming or sin in your life. In other words, don't quickly blow off the critic by saying, well, God is for me, therefore, this critic is obviously on Satan's side. Even if your opponent is motivated by selfishness or sin, God may be using him to get you to deal with an area of your life that needs attention. I found that if more than one critic says the same thing, even if their attitude is wrong, I probably need to listen to their criticism. Third, after you have honestly taken the first two steps, don't take the attacks against you personally. If you're catching flack because you're standing up for the truth, first make sure that you're doing so with gentleness, with grace, with humility. If, the, if to the best of your ability you are, then your critic is probably simply opposing God and His Word of truth, not you. You're just the messenger. Pray that God will use your gracious, loving response to bring that critic to repentance and faith. And also, before we leave verse 31, make sure that you apply the truth that God is for you to yourself, especially in times of failure or discouragement or sin. Maybe you had a mean father who constantly put you down, and when you messed up, he would backhand you or, or beat you with a belt. And maybe now you've messed up as a Christian and you're afraid that God is going to act like your dad. You need to know that God never does anything that is against you. He will discipline you, <laughs> perhaps severely, but it's always out of love so that you might share in His holiness. God never acts in a way to tear you down or reject you. He always acts in love for your good even when He corrects you. So the first truth is that God's sovereignty in saving us, that demands a response of worship and submission. The second truth, that God is for us in the gospel, 
That means that we must be evaluate all opposition and difficulties in light of God's love and His grace. Well, number three, three, the truth that God has done the greatest thing for us in the sacrifice of His own Son means that He will supply us with all that is needed for life and godliness. This is verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Paul's happy logic here is, God did the greatest thing imaginable when He gave His Son on the cross for us. So don't you think that He will graciously give us lesser things that we need? Now, as I said, this is not some form of prosperity gospel where God promises to fulfill your greed and your lusts. We've got plenty of those. Those aren't in the picture here. As verse 36 says, you may follow Jesus and get slaughtered. Rather, verse 32 promises that God will give you the grace that you need to endure opposition and persecution when you stand for the gospel. Beyond that, it also applies in, applies in the sense of 2 Peter 1.3. That's where uh, Peter says that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The Puritan, John Flavel, he put it this way, Surely, if he would not spare his own son one stroke... One tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery. It can never be imagined that he should ever after this deny or withhold from his people any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. End quote. Now note, note first, A, God has done the greatest thing imaginable by sacrificing His own Son. Now, the Greek word for spared, it's used in the Septuagint in Genesis 22, 12, and 16. This is where God tells Abraham, I know that you fear God since you have not withheld, there's the word, spared your own son, your only son from me. Now, with Abraham, God intervened at the last moment and provided the ram for the sacrifice. That way, Isaac was spared. But that emotional drama... That's the closest earthly picture that we have to what the Father went through in sending His eternal Son from heaven to bear the horrors of the cross on our behalf. Now I want you to note four things about Christ's death. Number one, Christ's death was not ultimately a humanly caused tragedy, but a divinely ordained solution to our sin and guilt. God gave up his son for us. Now there's a sense in which Judas gave up Jesus to die. That's John 18.5. Also the Jewish leaders gave up Jesus to Pilate. Matthew 27.2. The people of Jerusalem also gave up Jesus. Acts 3.13. Pilate gave up Jesus to death. Mark 15.15. 15. Paul also stated that Jesus was delivered, because, delivered over because of our transgressions. That's uh, Romans 4.25. And so in that sense, we delivered Him up. Paul says that Jesus gave Himself up for me. That's Galatians 2.20. As Jesus said, He laid down His life of His own initiative. That's John 10.18. But behind all of these secondary causes, it was the Father who delivered over the Son for us all. 
Isaiah predicted this in his great prophecy, Isaiah 53, when he said that Christ would be smitten of God. That's verse 4. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That's verse 6. But the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. That's verse 10. Or as Peter put it in Acts 2.23, this man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the determined, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of, ungo- of godless men and put Him to death. It was God's eternal purpose to glorify Himself by sending His Son to bear our sins. See, the cross glorifies God's absolute righteousness and justice in that He demanded that the penalty for sin, for our sin, be paid in full. God never sweeps sin under the rug. Sin is paid for only in only one or in one of only two ways, either by Jesus on the cross or you for eternity in hell. That's the only way sin is taken care of. It also glorifies His great love in that He gave His beloved Son in whom He was well pleased. Well, number two, Christ's death was substitutionary. Now, I, I wish I had more time to go into this. This is worth just a sermon. Matter of fact, I wrote a paper uh, when I was doing my um, uh, post-grad work on this, on the substitutionary uh, aspect of the atonement. You see, He gave Jesus for us all. He died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. Paul says that God made Him to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You see, because Jesus paid the penalty, we can justly be declared righteous at His expense. Well, number three, Christ's death was particular, personal, and effectual. God delivered Him over for us all. Who is the all here? Well, in context, it's those whom God foreknew, whom He predestined, whom He called, whom He justified, and whom He glorified. It's those for whom God is for. That's verse 31. It's God's elect, whom He justified. Verse 33. It's those for whom Christ now intercedes. That's verse 34. Now, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it's worth mentioning again. Note that all who God foreknew, foreknew, He predestined. All whom He predestined, He called. All whom He called, He justified. All whom He justified, He glorified. No one falls through the cracks. God did not die in the hope that maybe some would decide to respond to His offer and be saved. God is not in heaven, wringing His hands in desperation, saying, Oh, I've done all that I can do. It's, it's up to them now. Please, somebody respond. No. Christ died effectu- effectually to save all whom the Father predestined to save. He died so that of all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing but raise Him up on the last day. That's Jesus in John 6, 39. Or as he prayed just prior to the cross in John 17, this is a high priestly prayer. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. 
A few verses later in verse 9, he prayed, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Who did Jesus lay his life down for in John 10? His sheep. In, 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 in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, number four, Christ's death was the supreme demonstration of God's love and grace for us as sinners. Most modern translations leave out a small, very small Greek particle in verse 32 that the lexicon, it translates this way, who did not spare even his own son. Now, his own son, that emphasizes that Jesus is the unique, unique son of God in a way that we are not and never can be. We are God's adopted sons by the new birth, but Jesus is the eternal son of God. The Father and the Son enjoyed unbroken love in the Trinity from all eternity past. So for the Father to send even His own Son and not to spare Him when it came to pouring out on Him all of the full measure of His wrath for our sakes, it shows His great love for us. Parents, you, you know what I'm talking about here. Sometimes you spare your children by not inflicting the full punishment on them for something that they've done wrong. You have compassion. Judges, they spare criminals when they impose a light sentence in view of mitigating circumstances. But God did not spare even His own Son, who became a curse for us. Because Jesus bore God's awful wrath against our sin, we now face no condemnation when we stand before Him. Thus be, God will graciously supply us with all that is needed for life and godliness. Now, do you see Paul's logic? If God did the unimaginably greatest thing possible for us, by not sparing His own Son, then won't He do that which is far less demanding? Again, this doesn't mean that He's going to give you a mansion, a fancy new car, or a great career. The context deals with enduring opposition for the sake of the gospel. Paul means that when you face opposition or hardship for the sake of the gospel, through Christ, God will give you all that you need to conquer overwhelmingly. We're going to see that in a little bit later. As He brings you to share in Christ's glory. So the only reasonable response on our behalf is that which Paul mentions in Philippians 3.8. It's there that he says that he counts all other things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I confess that my sufferings for Christ, they're mere trifles compared to with what our brothers and sisters around the world are enduring. I mean, I've had some criticisms, uh, criticism and slander. Big deal. No one's ever threatened my life. A recent Vision Beyond Borders newsletter told of a brother in an unnamed, closed Buddhist country in Southeast Asia who is committed to take the gospel to every Buddhist monastery in that country. And several years ago, he and a friend were headed to a village to share the gospel where they offered a ride to a woman uh, walking along the road. And when they arrived at the village, she invited them into her home for a meal. 
Well, after dinner, they showed the Jesus film. That was the method of evangelism they were using. In their language, of course. <laughs> they showed the Jesus film to her and some neighbors that she invited over. Well, other neighbors called the police. And this evangelist went to prison for seven months. After he was released, he excitedly reported, you'll never guess what God did. He allowed us to go to prison to bring the gospel to the prisoners. We shared the gospel with 180 prisoners, led 20 to faith in Jesus Christ, and baptized eight in prison. Imagine that. He went to prison for preaching the gospel. Now he's preaching the gospel in prison. Later, this evangelist was arrested again, and he had many opportunities to witness, including sharing the gospel with the warden of the prison. He said, God has given him a prison ministry. Where is your ministry? Have you encountered any opposition in it? If you stand for the truth of the gospel, even if you do so with grace and love, you're probably going to encounter some opposition. Now you can joyfully endure it by focusing on God's love as seen in His giving even His own Son to die for your sins. Well, let's pray. Father, that gift, uh, Paul describes it in uh, 1 Corinthians there as indescribable. The indescribable gift of Your Son, Jesus. Uh, Father, we are going to spend eternity marveling at just how great that salvation is. And we thank You for it. And then, Father, I pray that You would just speak to our hearts this morning. If there's anybody here that is not has not participated in that gospel message, has not heard it clearly, Father, I pray that You take the, the scales off of their eyes and the wax out of their ears and the hardness of their heart away so that they can see Jesus for who He really is. Father, we thank You for that gift. And it's in His precious name we pray. Amen. Well, if you don't know Jesus... Uh, he, he himself said that He is the way, the truth, and the life. There was no other way to come to the Father. Now, there's only one way to the Father. That's through Jesus. But there are many ways to Jesus. There is no doubt about that. Uh, you've heard a lot of truth about the crucifixion this morning and the reason. as uh, a substitutionary. He died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. So I'm, you know, I'm just going to throw it out there this morning. If you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, you need to turn to Him. You need to ask God to forgive you of your sins and turn from your sin. Then you need to trust in Jesus Christ, have faith in Him, believe in Him. Trust what He did nearly 2,000 years ago now in dying on the cross for your sins. You do that and He will make you a new creation today. If you've got questions about that, please, you don't have to do it during the invitation. I invite you to, okay? But talk to me afterwards if you've got questions about that. If you're a believer, I hope that you're just, um, I don't know, overwhelmed by the goodness of God and what He has done for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. <laughs> he that did not spare even His own Son... How will He not also freely give us all things? That's the God we serve. And we're never going to exhaust our knowledge or understanding of the gospel. Sarah actually read it, the verse that we read. Ephesians, I don't know if you caught it, but it was great. Ephesians 2, 7. We all know uh, verse 8 and 9, right? Um, 
Where are we here? Verse 7. Yeah. He says, So that, he said, He has seated us with Christ in the heavenlies, so that in the coming ages, the Greek word there is eons. <laughs> so we're talking, yeah, ages for the eons, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches. What does immeasurable mean? You can't measure it. The immeasurable riches of His grace... God's grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's one of the things we have to look forward to in eternity is a further expanding of our understanding of the gospel and just how precious Jesus is. I hope that describes your walk with Him now as precious. If you're a believer, it should be. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.